0: the patrol agent in charge of the Carrizo Spring Station, Class 373. And you are listening to the Old Patrol HQ Podcast. There ain't no patrol like the Old Patrol. Honor first, honor always. Greetings and welcome to Episode 22 of the Old Patrol HQ Podcast. I'm your host, Gil Maza. This podcast is dedicated to celebrating and preserving the history, heritage, and legacy of the Old Patrol through the words of those who lived it with a few shenanigans along the way. In celebration of Women's History Month, we talked with Vanessa McKeon, Class 373 out of Charleston, and the patrol agent in charge of Carrizo Springs Station. Initially, coming into the Border Patrol was a foot in the door to federal employment. She soon realized this was the job for her, and she worked her way up the ranks and made history in the patrol in a number of ways. And we have her story exclusively here at Old Patrol HQ. Honor first, honor always. Good morning, ma'am, and welcome to the Old Patrol HQ podcast.
1: Good morning. Thank you for having me.
0: Let's start out by talking about how you first got started in the patrol.
1: So I joined the Border Patrol in 1998. Mm -hmm. I had gone to a family reunion the summer before, August of '97. And I had a cousin who was going through the application process, and he gave me the, the telephone number, and kind of, just off by chance, I went
2: ahead and called the 800 number and got involved in the process. Mm-hmm. I had always wanted to be in law enforcement because my father was a highway patrolman. Yeah. So I, I grew up with that highway patrol car sitting in the driveway and, you know, seeing a uniform every day. That's what I grew up seeing and, and being around. Mm-hmm. So
1: I always knew I wanted to be in law enforcement, and... At the time I, I was working for a medical office. I was not in law enforcement. I had gone to college. I got my degree in administration of justice. I just wasn't putting any good use to it yet. And when I started probably with the Border Patrol, I didn't plan on staying with the Border Patrol. Hmm. I really didn't know what they did and i I saw it as a as a foot in the federal door to another agency maybe in the future. Uh-huh. Then nineteen ninety eight joined the Border Patrol and Started off, my first duty station was in Brownsville, Texas. When we EOD'd, our report was to report to McAllen, Texas. And I remember when I got my letter in the mail, I had to call my dad and ask him, where's McAllen, Texas? <laughs> so these were before the days of have everyone having a smartphone in their pocket and being able to just Google someplace yeah, and, Google be, and see where it was. Yeah, yeah. So And he had to pull out an atlas. So there's probably a whole generation listening that doesn't even know what an atlas is.
0: How was the hiring process for you?
1: So for me, the hiring process actually went very smoothly, and I didn't have any troubles navigating it. I Again, I called the 800 number in August of uh, 1997 and was in the academy by April of 1998. And I had probably three weeks' notice before I had the EOD. I had classmates that when they got their notice, yeah. they had the EOD the very next week. Oh. So, yeah, I couldn't imagine having to pack up your entire life and put it on hold with a week's notice.
0: Yeah, I know that I was gone in about three months compared to a lot of the people that I talked to of my classmates that were waiting from six months to a year. So wow. that was a little different yeah. for us. And of course, back in in the late 90s like that, that's when they were going through the big
1: hiring push too. Mm-hmm. So 96, 97, 98, 99, there was, you know, they were really pushing those classes through. Tell so. us
0: about your uh, experience showing up at the academy.
1: So getting to the academy, I... My experience getting to the academy is probably the exact same experience you're going to hear from everyone, and you get there, and you immediately have the, oh my goodness, what have I gotten myself into feeling. <laughs> you, when when those uh, instructors at the academy get on that bus with their dress uniform on, and they're smoky, and or they're giving you all that look, and they're yelling at you, and they're telling you what to do, it, it's very intimidating, it's scary. Everybody is, you know, we're all in the same boat of, oh my goodness, what comes next, and Already you're having that uneasy feeling. And, and the only people around you are people you've known for less than 48 hours. That's your support system. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's the same thing that, you know, they get on there, they're yelling at everybody to get their luggage, get off the bus, and, and line up, and they start giving you the, the riot act, reading you the rules of the do's and don'ts while you're gonna be there. for The next 19 and a half weeks.
0: Well, you, so. said you said your father was a highway patrol officer. Did he? Missouri State Highway Patrol, yes. But the... <laughs> Uh, Missouri Highway Patrol did he was he able to give you a little bit of a prep or a little bit Any kind of preparation for what you were going to experience at the Academy?
1: You know what? So we had talked about it a lot. I mean he had told me you know that I Was gonna be in for a rude awakening. Yeah, I, mean, I, I had never been in the military or anything So I hadn't already experienced anything that was quasi boot camp mm-hmm. before in my life and and uh, You know he had he had been in the, the army and so he had already experienced that he going through a highway patrol academy he had experienced that so he he kind of had a pretty good sense of what was what i was probably in for and, and i think was able to mentally prepare me a little bit for that i don't know if anybody can give you the tools that you're going to be completely prepared for it
0: yeah yeah even even as a, a former marine when i got there it was you know this is this is years later i'm not a young man anymore and uh Yep, going, starting and going through that experience again was just as, you know, was just as powerful in my psyche as well. Yes. It's, it's scary. It's intimidating when you very first get there. It's
1: intimidating. Even though you're showing up already a, a strong, invested person who knows they want to go into law enforcement, you've uh-huh. got a type A personality, you're being put in your place yeah. while you're
0: there, and you know that you kind of need to stay in your place, too. Yeah. Was there any other females there in your class with you?
1: So I had, I had one other female in my class, Charlene, and when we got to the academy, that's when they divide you up in your sections, and we were in different sections. Mm. So she was, uh, you know, one other female classmate, and we were in different groups. Ah. Of course, we were roommates, and, and grew to be very close friends, but actually, you know, every day going through class, doing all of the things that you
2: have to do as far as the PT and the, all of the, the firearms and driving, and all of the things, we were never together for any of that stuff. We were always in different sections.
0: Yeah. And um, what do you think were your biggest challenges there
1: at the academy? Oh, I don't make any bones about it. The, the PT was definitely the hardest thing for me. Yeah. Um, I definitely should have shown up in better shape than I was in. And even at the times of my life when I have been in very good shape,
0: running has never been my thing, ever. I, I think most of my friends know if they see me running, they probably should go in the same direction I'm going because there's something chasing me. so you need need a big motivation to have to run in the first place (laughs) (laughs) yes
1: I I do not care for running it is not my thing it
2: has never been my thing Um,
1: but that's again though one of those places where my classmates were just so supportive of me uh, while we were at the academy because every single day you know when you go out for your run what's the first thing you do you form it up right there with the PT instructor Mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. well every single day when we would go outside and form it up my spot was right there in the corner right up front right beside the instructor and all of my classmates that were around me every day were motivating me and encouraging me to, to keep pushing, to go, you know, try harder and to stay up longer than, uh, right up front, longer than I had the day before. Yeah. So they, they were motivating me
0: and pushing me and encouraging me and never once, you know, I'll leave or, or whatever. I mean, it was, it was always encouraging. It was always, we're all going to do this together. We're all going to get through this together. Yeah. It's amazing how much you come to depend on that while you're there, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely, you know, and being away from home, you know, those become your your closest
2: friends and people that, you know, you you don't realize then, that you've just made friends that you're going to have for the rest of your life. Yes.
0: Now, tell me about, uh, you you know, so, you know, you graduated and um, that must have been a, a, well, we all know that's a magnificent experience and a magnificent feeling. My father pinned my badge on me. Oh, that's, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. So he was there at your graduation and he, and he pinned your badge.
2: Yes, my parents came, and, and my dad pinned my badge, and
0: that's you know a very special moment for me in my life. Oh, he must have been through the roof.
1: Yeah, I, I'm sure he was just as out that day as I was.
0: <laughs> that's wonderful. So you are now ready to report to your duty station, which is going to be you said Brownsville. Yes. Tell me about the first day you walked into Brownsville Station. So get to Brownsville, and we had been told
1: before. Before we were leaving the academy, like at graduation or whatever, that when you all get to the border patrol station that morning, you know, either Monday morning six a.m. and you need to look for Norma Cortez, and, and
2: that's who's going to deal with you guys and tell you what to do next. Mm-hmm. Show up to the station that morning, and first
1: people I see, I ask them, "Where is Norma Cortez?" And they tell me, "Oh, she just had a baby. Good luck with that." And we're like, <laughs> "Oh, oh, okay." And it was kind of just that, flip it, and, and in passing. Yeah. So. We, we all kind of just walked in and started figuring out, okay, if Norma's not here, who do we need to talk to now? And my class, our entire class, went to either the Brownsville Station or the Fort Brown Station, which is what the old Port of is- Isabel was. Mm-hmm. So all of us went to just those two stations. So There's a pretty good group of us showing up there Monday morning. And, you know, every, everybody there is already doing their thing. Uh, you know, Brownsville Station went from a, 30-man station to a 330-man station in the, in the course of about two
2: years. Mm-hmm. So we, we reached a point where you had, literally you had people who had six months' time in service were the ones that were the training officers and journeymen for the next batch that came on. Yeah,
0: it's amazing how rapid fire that went during during that time. I also had journeymen and people that were giving me CNEs that were just a few classes of, you know, ahead of me. We had the exact same thing going on in Brownsville. And did you ever did you ever uh, meet up with Miss Cortez?
1: Yes, yes. After she returned from her maternity leave, then, you know, everyone got to meet her then. And she actually, throughout my career, she ended up being one of those people that was a, a mentor for me and became a very close friend of mine. Uh-huh. So I'm very fortunate that Brownsville was my first duty station and, and to have met her she came back
0: from attorney leave yes i remember when i was at the academy they uh, i was hoping for uh, one of the checkpoint stations because i guess because it was closer to my home and i ended up getting alcohol station and i remember complaining about it and then one of my buddies there telling me shut up man that's one of the best stations in the patrol there in san diego sector so don't don't, don't complain and, and he was right and he was right so that i ended up going to you know what i think was the best station i could have gone to myself personally, even though it was a long drive to work and back every day. That's awesome. That's good. So tell me about the work there in Brownsville. You got there, you're obviously on the training program. What was the work like?
1: So, and that's where, you know, during the FTO program and they're taking you around and they're showing you things and showing you all of the different aspects of Border Patrol work. I enjoyed that. That was fun. But because you were really kind of doing something different every day,
2: mm-hmm. but, ended and they went ahead and kind of cut you loose and and put you to work then the work at that time
1: was sitting on an X or processing you know occasionally you'd rotate through and you'd have bus check or airport check but it was a lot of sitting on an X which that that in and of itself wasn't that much fun
0: yeah I remember it's just amazing how the two things I think PAS hate the most, and you know, initially in the careers is sitting on an X and processing, and that was the full. That was basically what was going on full time there.
1: Absolutely, mm. that's, that's what you show up and walk into, and, <laughs> and then start realizing, oh boy, this is what I signed up to do. You know, during the FTO program, they had taken us up to Kingsville so that we could, because we didn't have a checkpoint in Brownsville, but they, you know, part of the FTO program, they expose you to just as much of Border Patrol work as they can. So they took us up to Kingsville so we could uh-huh. see the checkpoint up there and work the checkpoint. Well, as soon as we got there, they had had a, a, a bug go off and they were going to send a scope trap out to go work the traffic
2: and they already knew it was going to be good traffic. So a couple of my classmates stayed behind and a couple of us jumped in the scope to go help with the group. And sure enough, it was a group of about thirty coming up the railroad tracks there in Kingsville. And the adrenaline rush oh, and yeah. everything that happened when you know they're telling us you here you there don't move and don't say a word till you see the flashlights come on and then just start grabbing people it was like okay (laughs) yeah
1: and you know when that all happened it was amazing and it was amazing how well it all worked too because you know they they walked right into the middle of all of us they had no idea how many of us were set up on each side of the railroad tracks and it was it was awesome it was just an amazing experience we get back to the checkpoint after this whole thing has transpired for them to turn us back over to our field training officer at the checkpoint. And, and we're all kind of pumped and telling our classmates about it who had been there working at the checkpoint. And as we're leaving, I remember those agents looking at us and smiling and saying, okay, you guys go have fun on your exes. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think they knew we had just seen the most excitement we were going to see that year. Yeah, but
0: it's so funny listening to you talk. It just brings me, I, I could close my eyes and tell you exactly my very first time when I laid in in the darkness with bugs crawling on me, waiting to hear that rustle of footsteps and brush coming up in the distance. And then, ma'am, the heart starts to pump and your brain starts to, everything gets like vivid live right then and there.
1: Yes, it's amazing, and it's one of those things you almost can't even describe to somebody. They, they have to have experienced it before, but if they've experienced it, they know exactly what you're talking
0: about. Yeah, but the funny thing is, who in their right mind goes out in the middle of nowhere, sits in the dark, waiting for a bunch of bodies to walk up on them? <laughs> <I don't even laughs> you have control. no
1: idea what they're doing, if they're carrying drugs, if they're carrying guns, yes. or you, you have no idea who or what is coming at you,
0: Yeah. So you go back to Brownsville, Brownsville and you're, uh, you know, working the X, doing the process and everything, and so now you got to kind of start figuring out your way. Yes. So, and it didn't take long to figure out, you know, hey, I need to start volunteering for some of these other things because, you know, just doing the processing and just sit on the X is, you know, not yeah. all that fulfilling. Early on, my supervisor started sending me to enforce training
1: regularly as far as any time, kind of whenever it came around, and they, they were required to send somebody to the enforce training they sent me to a couple of them so kind of early in my career I ended up being an enforce instructor and had kind of the super user access so I could do things that not everybody could do mm-hmm. and so I really enjoyed that and I, and I was good at it so I became very good at processing um, so then even though a lot of people didn't like processing I was good at it so I didn't mind being back there because I was also in a position where I was able to be helpful yeah you know my my peers that I was working with and even the the journeyman agents who had you know many many years of service in over me you know they were kind of asking me for a little bit of help or I was in a position where I was able to help them because I got along with Enforce it it got along with me it didn't get along with
0: everybody no no my gosh I'm sure you remember the complaining and the murmuring and the grumbling about all the little bugs and everything going on you know how you you know involved it was how complicated why does this have to be and, it seems redundant yes yes so i'm sure you heard that. all that stuff
1: absolutely on, on numerous occasions yes <laughs> so I got, I got to do that early on and, and and i found that to be fulfilling i found that to be a little bit more rewarding you know being, mm-hmm. a, being in a position where i was teaching others and instructing and and also just being in a position back in the processing room where i was able to kind of help others and and help get the job done you know
0: yes and so did uh, besides the uh besides you know helping out with the processing and getting involved in that did you join any other special units
1: so i did a couple of other things while i was down there i was on the horse patrol unit for for probably about two years my horse patrol career came to a very sudden end when i broke my shoulder uh wrecking the horse but i enjoyed those couple of years that i was on it it was great um I did the PAO, I did training. I was involved with our Explorer program when I was in Brownsville. And at one point, even before I, I left, I was the lead advisor for the Explorer program. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoyed working with the kids and, and taking them to competitions. We, we got to go to the the National Explorer competition in Atlanta. We got to go to the National uh, Boy Scout Jamboree that they held at Fort AP Hill, Virginia got to do that one year, so I, I really got to do some really cool things
0: being with, with working with and dealing with the Explorer program. Yeah, that's uh, actually one of the programs near and dear to me as well. I, I was the lead advisor at El Cajon from 2000 to 2008, and um, I, like you, it's one of the best parts of my career was working with those kids.
1: Yes, and also some of those kids, uh, for me, they've
2: gone on to, to become agents. Oh, that's so rewarding, isn't it? Yes, it is,
1: and I'm still maintain contact with a few of them too. So it's been awesome.
0: So what exactly happened while you were on the horse patrol unit that you ended up breaking your shoulder?
1: Oh, we were responding to traffic. A bug had gone off, and it was a little ways from us. So my partner and I were riding along. We heard the bug go off. We told, you know, called out that we'd be heading that way, and so we're kind of galloping down the road. And my horse stepped into a little rut or hole in the road and tripped. So when my horse tripped and he went down, I went flying off the front of him like Superman. Mm. And luckily, I just landed on my shoulder and rolled. And when I was rolling, I could see the horse was kind of rolling, too. I know
0: at one point he had legs up in the air, and I was like, oh, goodness, he's going to get up and trample me. So like, barreling up behind him you? <laughs> yeah. Oh. So he, he, he rolled, and then he stood up. And I remember I
1: tried to get up as quick as I could. My partner was like, be careful, be careful, you know don't don't get up so fast. I'm like, I'm okay, I'm okay. And I kind of remember I kind of moved everything around and, and I was like, I'm good. But if I'm going to break something, you better catch him. So get over there. And and I sent him on his way. He did not want to leave me. He yeah. did not want to leave me at all. But I I knew I was okay. I knew I was not, had not injured myself in any life threatening manner. And sent my partner on his, on his way to go catch him and, and called my supervisor to let him know that I was hurt and he needed to come pick me up. And send somebody to get the horse mm-hmm. and as soon as I hung up with him not even 30 seconds later our other supervisor he called and he said are you really hurt or are you messing with Chris and I was like <laughs> I'm really hurt I, I may mess with people but I would not joke about this thank you <laughs> so I guess I had developed some type of a reputation of you know being
0: a jokester or something yeah. to think that I was just kidding around about having a broken bone <laughs> <laughs> of course it's to be expected right out in the field yes and and then face it we've all worked with people over the years we we do things like that to each other yeah yeah that's part of the fun yes absolutely so I, I imagine it would have taken you a bit to recover from that
1: yes it did so I had to actually have surgery and when when I realized it was going to be time that I was going to be out for a while I went ahead and by this time now, my, my dad has retired. My parents have relocated and moved to Arizona. So I went out and stayed with my parents out there to have surgery and had them kind of help me get through all that. Was, when I was down in Brownsville, I was single. I lived alone. So it was before I had met my husband. Mm-hmm. Dealing with all that prior than surgery and getting yourself to and from a doctor's appointment, all that stuff. Yeah, I just went ahead and went out and stayed with mom and dad and got that taken care of in Arizona.
0: Uh, so at this point... Are you still, is it still in your mind that this, you know, being in the Border Patrol would be just a stepping stone in the federal work and that you would find another place or what what, what was going, or that you decided that you're going to start moving up, you know, maybe moving up the chain of command? So I would say I was probably in for a few years before I finally realized, yeah, I don't, I don't think I'm going to use this as a
1: stepping stone. I think I really like this. Mm. I think I enjoy this and want to make a career out of this. And... I didn't... I got, got married in 2005 and that's also the same year that I promoted. So, and when I got married in 2005, that was also when I kind of went ahead and resigned to the fact of I
0: was never leaving Texas because I married a Texas boy and they don't leave Texas. That's right. And if they are forced <laughs> to leave, they always make their way back. They're coming back. Yeah, they're coming <laughs> back. So, I, I promoted um, in February of
1: 2005. Mm-hmm. And but I promoted there in Brownsville and, and I enjoyed that. I enjoyed, I, I had been there at that point, you know, for seven years. I knew everything about the station. I knew how everything got done. So it really seemed like a pretty logical step for me to go ahead and start promoting because I wasn't getting paid for doing it, but I was helping out supervisors and doing,
0: you know, what most would consider or the supervisory work at the time anyway even just help them get some of the paperwork done and help get the files processed and help get the files checked and signed off on and, and all that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, you, you promoted the supervisor in 2005. Were there, were there any specific or special challenges for you being a female in the patrol during this time up until this point?
1: No, no, I don't think I ever had... I don't think I ever... It didn't occur to me, and it didn't occur to me to even think about being a female or things being different for me early in my career. I mean, again, my dad had kind of prepared me for the fact that, you know, look, you're going into a male-dominated environment. Mm I don't know if most people don't know, maybe they do. Law enforcement as a whole across the United States is about 10% female, and the Border Patrol is 5% female. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're we're not even maintaining, you know, up to that 10% that the rest of the country is at. But that in and of itself, you know, I'm okay with that. The Border Patrol
2: Academy is the only federal law enforcement academy that does not have separate physical standards for men and women. Yes. So when we're going through the academy and you have to run the mile and a half or you have to do the obstacle
1: course or the run, all of that stuff, it's the same requirement for the men as it is for the women. And I I hope they never change that because that to me is, is, it's an accomplishment and it says something.
0: Oh, agreed 100 percent. There are a lot of things that make the Border Patrol unique amongst all other law enforcement on the planet. But that, in particular, I think really sets us apart in the fact that when our female agents go to that academy, they are put through the same paces as everybody else. So when they graduate and you walk out of that academy, you can stand tall and say with a straight face, you know, nothing, nothing, you weren't given any special considerations, any modifications, you walk the walk just like everybody else getting out of that academy. Absolutely, and so again, early in my career, it didn't it didn't dawn on me to even think about being uh,
1: that I'm a, I'm a female or that you know things being treated differently or feeling like I'm being treated differently. And I I didn't experience that or feel that really early in my career. I mean, you 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 know your own limitations and you figure out what you're able to do, what you're not able to do. Physically, I, I'm not going to be as strong as, as the men, and I know that. So, you know, the, the funny story of when I was in the academy, you know, remember the red man drills
0: and the stacking drills and stuff, where they have either several people coming at you, or they several, you know, you're being pinned down and figure out how to get up. I can still so, smell. I can still smell the <laughs> mat. I can remember during one of the exercises you start off you're you're laying down and
1: you have a classmate that is laying on that's on top of you that's trying to get your gun from you Mm -hmm. and I can still remember laying there and having one hand on my gun and I knew you know I'm watching everybody go ahead of me or there's a couple of people who went ahead of me and I'm watching they're struggling trying to get you know because they picked one of the biggest guys in the class to be the guy who's trying to get the gun of course and I'm watching them struggle and see that you know these these bigger guys are having a problem doing this. I'm not, you know, this is gonna be difficult for me to do the way they're telling us, it's not gonna work. So when it was my turn, say go and it starts happening, keep one hand on my gun and I just reached down and you know, between the the red man suit where it doesn't connect, there's areas of exposed skin and I just pinched as hard as I could on my classmate's thigh, his (laughs) inner thigh he screamed so loud, and he jumped up and said, she pinched me. <laughs> and my instructor started laughing, and he looked at us, and he said, well, she got up, and she still has her gun. Yep. <laughs> so,
0: I mean,
1: because I knew I wasn't I wasn't going to be able to physically get him off of me just by brute strength. It wasn't going to work like that.
0: Yeah, well, so, you know, that, and that's the thing, too, is because uh, – Even even as a man, you know, I remember when we we still we still had boxing when I was going through, and you know they were sizing everybody up kind of the same, and I was kind of sizing up my opponents, saying okay, well let's see what happens in this guy, that guy, trying to figure figure my way through, and at the I was the last guy to be called up, and they called the biggest guy, the tallest guy in the room to for me to box. Yeah, and he's a have that go for you. Yeah. He's a southpaw, and I did real good for a while till I forgot he was a southpaw, and then there's a haymaker that came from, I don't know, from freaking Los Angeles to Glencoe <laughs> that made me see into another dimension, but it's funny how it works out that way. Yeah, well, for
1: boxing, you know, I told you, the only other female in my class, she was in the other section, so yeah. when boxing came around, you know, she had to box guys in her class, I had to box guys in my class, and they, they paired me up with one of my classmates that was taller. He had reach, and uh, we went two rounds, and, and he, he was hitting me, but I think everybody could tell he probably wasn't really ringing my bell. And so for the third round, they put another one of my classmates who was shorter and stockier in, and he did. He rung my bell. <laughs> I think uh, I, We went the entire the final round, and I think he hit me, They rung, you know, called time, and I hit the mat, and I don't know that I was out-out, but I know they got the smelling salts out, and two days later, I had a black eye.
0: (laughs) Well learned. Yes, yes. (laughs) You did, in our our conversations previously, you had mentioned how the, 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 the treatment you were getting from some particular agents that you had to kind of nip in the bud
1: the thing you know we we realize that there are are some people people the way you treat other people it's all about the way you're raised right yeah, yeah. We, we we treat people the way we're raised to, to treat people and, and for the most part you know you're always going to treat people nice and treat people well unless you know they prove otherwise to you and so i think that definitely for an older generation of men you know the older generation from mine there were men that were not necessarily raised to believe that women should be in the profession. And it, I don't think it was necessarily a, a bad thing on their part. It was never meant to be a bad thing on their part. Mm-hmm. So you, you kind of have to quickly make that relationship with them and build that relationship to let them know that, you know, I'm good, I, I can do this, and I, I, I can take care of myself. And if need to, I'll take care of you too, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So I, I remember, you know, I had one classmate that... that uh, you know we're, we're going out to the vehicle one day and this was the first time I'd ever been paired up with him and I uh, I'm sorry it wasn't a classmate a co-worker and we're walking out to the vehicle and he heads right over to the passenger side of the door to open the passenger side of the door for me and I said no you can't do that and he says well my mama raised me to be a gentleman I said and your mama raised you right but no we're, we're not gonna open the car door uh, while while I will say thank you, I will say don't ever do that again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it's one thing to do that—just walking in or out of a building or something or a convenience store—but yes, you know, you can't do that when you're talking about a GOV and going to work. Yeah,
0: I, I have to admit that was my first inst- instinct as well with any female agent I got paired up with. But eventually, that kind of went away because heck, heck, they were better—they were better agents than I was. So as a you know, they yeah. can open the door for me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and and, and so that's what it is though. It's it's kind of the way we're raised, right? You know, yes. we're raised that that
1: you know, women maybe ne- can't necessarily do the same things as men, you know, just for brute strength. And but learning and developing that mindset of, you know, they can do whatever they want to do and figure it out and everybody brings a different skill set to the table. Yeah.
0: And again, it's just like like you said, it's that politeness, it's that idea of etiquette, manners, gentlemanly politeness, but It could. It it definitely had. There's a place for that, right? An agent. You you know, if you get to the door first, you'll open the door for me. Vice versa, whatever. Exactly. But you. But you can't go the whole distance of being chivalrous to the extent of compromising your, you know, your place in the sense of you know you are a a border patrol agent in a green uniform, and if I'm out in the field and I'm in trouble or whatever happens. I don't care what gender that is running out there to help me out. You know, I just want to see a green uniform having my back. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and
1: I've always felt that way. You know, I've felt that way with all of the people that I've worked with. It's never mattered to me if I was partnered up with a man or a woman. And I've had times where, you know, they've you know I've got to go out and patrol with, with another female agent. And those, are,
2: those days are just as awesome as the days I'm out patrolling with the guys, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. It was always fun. But I remember when we when we would go
1: out and there would be two females paired up together, you know, I can remember being out in public like that and it would make people comment and, wow, I've never seen two female agents before.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well,
1: almost blow their wheels
0: off. Oh, well, yeah. I and mean, for a good while in the patrol, it, w- it was a brand new thing. Yeah.
1: And so that, again, early in my career, I'm going to say probably the entire time I was in Brownsville, I never really appreciated it. The foundation and, and the things that, that women who have gone before me,
2: mm-hmm.
1: their, their accomplishments and what they had
2: done. Yeah,
0: I can say the same thing. I, I think if I had known a little more in depth the history of the patrol, I would have tried my best to carry myself just that much better. Yeah. So you promoted in 2005. Tell us how things progressed from there.
1: Okay. So I promoted to first line supervisor in Brownsville in 2005. In 2007, I took a lateral reassignment over to the Ivaldi station in Del Rio sector as a first line supervisor there. And I promoted to FOS at the same station in 2009. And I promoted to APAC over in Del Rio in 2012. And then to DPAC in 2013. And then I was the XO over at Del Rio sector in 2015. And I took my last assignment here as a patrol agent charging Carrizo in 2018. I've done several things over the years and probably, you know, I talk about the first half of my career, I didn't really notice there being a difference, the, the, the men and women thing, and didn't really notice the difference about the acknowledging it, you know? Mm-hmm. But probably about the time that, that uh, I made FOS in 2009, I got detailed at one point over to Sector as an acting uh, A-Chief mm-hmm. and... So I was sent over there, and I was, you know, around really all these men, all all of the men at at sector at the time. They were everyone everyone in leadership position throughout the entire sector, all of the APACs and D Once we had the you know the D position, the patrol agent charge, the assistant chiefs, the, the chief, the deputy.
2: Everybody in a leadership position in the entire sector was a man. Mm-hmm. So if there was a meeting, a leadership meeting, or or anything.
1: Decisions being made and a group of people getting together to make the decisions, I would be the only female sitting in the room. And, and I kind of started noticing that then, that
2: there's not even one other person sitting in the room that's a female. Yeah. And
0: what was but, it What was it like maneuvering in that environment?
1: So, at first, I think you, I don't really know what happens where it kind of dawns on you and you notice it, but, but for me, it, it happened and I noticed it. It dawned on me. But I didn't, I didn't let it impact me or affect the way that I interacted with others. I was still going to be myself. I was still going to be a Border Patrol agent. I was still going to do my job. Mm-hmm. And at that time, you know, when I came over to Del Rio Sector, while I still had maintained a relationship with Norma, she was no longer here with me for that each and every day conversations or, or telling her how things were going. So I, I realized, you know, I kind of got to, I, I need to start figuring these things out for myself sometimes, you know. There's not always going to be the phone call to call somebody and, you know, hey, this happened, and, you know, have you ever had this happen, or, you know, if there was something out of the ordinary, but I also, at the same time, when I got over to Del Rio Sector, I found out that, while Norma had been my mentor while I was in the Valley, I just found another mentor over here, Mm -hmm. and so, whether it be female or male, it really didn't matter, Yeah, we all kind of gravitate towards somebody who's like like-minded and, and similar beliefs about things and those are the people that you want to Receive guidance from and hear about their experience. So really their gender doesn't matter.
0: Yeah Did people there at sector take you under their wing and, and kind of you know try to Show you the ropes and get you you know moving in the right direction how you know just how things work there? Yeah,
1: I, I did I had, a, I had a couple of them that I think treated me very well and you know wanted to see me succeed these are people that I'll be forever grateful to. I mean, uh, Doug Spielman, I had worked with him down in the Valley, mm-hmm. and when I got over here, he was an assistant chief at Sector, and, and he definitely helped to guide me and, and help me to understand things and teach me so that I was learning you know, the way
0: things got done in the Border Patrol because you know, sometimes policy and guidance and the way things actually get done don't all line up the same way, so you have to figure out how to get things done the right way and keep everything the right the right way and do things correctly yes well i know that when you know guys like me that are working the you know ground pounders and never did promote up but you know i never did promote up the ladder because i kind of bought that not you know 9 to 11 for life deal out in the field and got involved with a lot of other projects that i ended up doing that Really, you know, it, it it probably is one of my only regrets is that I didn't probably, I should have souped up maybe 10 years ago, but be that as it may, you know, I'm at the end of my career and uh, I'm, I'm very happy with everything that I've ever done with it, but it's hard for us to re- understand what goes on kind of in that little divide between the field and sector. Absolutely. And you've gotten so to see my... both sides. Oh, absolutely. And that was my introduction when I first went over there on detail to the fact that Everybody has a
1: boss, because while the field is listening to what Sector is telling them to do, Sector is listening to what headquarters is telling them to do, and mm-hmm. headquarters is listening to what an administration tells them to do. Mm-hmm. So there is, no matter what position you're in in life,
0: everybody's got a boss. Yeah. <laughs> That's for sure.
1: So it, was, it was good being over at Sector. It was it was. Experienced it more so even when I promoted and I was the executive officer over at Sector. Mm-hmm. I really experienced the, you know, being in a small group and being in the room with the decision makers and, and being an influencer in decision making.
0: no so well, when some, I was there... At, I'm sorry, go ahead. I, well, I was just going to say, when I was there as the executive officer
1: over at Sector, Rudy Karish, he was the chief that promoted me to the executive officer mm-hmm. position. And I definitely learned a lot from him. He was also, another one of those mentors in my career who helped guide me and helped me to
0: understand how the bigger decisions were made, even when maybe sometimes we don't always understand them. Yes, I was gonna say that it seems to me for somebody who came in just to use the border patrol as a stepping stone to another career, you seem to have worked your way through, you know, for starting out at Browns at Brownsville and learning what you learned, and going through and, you know, promoting as you did. What do you think uh, was it about you that uh, facilitated that process for you? I think my ability, my willingness to learn, my willingness to get involved, no, nobody's ever asked me to do something, and I've turned around and you know, at work as far
1: as an assignment or a task or a project that needed to be done, I've never had a, a supervisor or a leader at work that has asked me to do something or take on a, an assignment or a challenge or something and told them no. I've always said yes, no matter how busy I was, no matter how to, no matter how many other things on my plate I've had, I've I've always tried to figure out a way that okay, yeah, we're gonna get that done too. You know, maybe busy doing all these other things over here, but okay. You know, boss, you want to get that done too? We're going to get that done too. Mm-hmm. Being a part of that and helping others to get things done as well. I've, I've enjoyed that. I've appreciated that.
0: Well, in, in other conversations you and I have had, you you said that you, were, you felt you were well-mentored and the people around you wanted to see you succeed. But you've done a lot of that as well, not just with female agents, but with male agents, correct?
1: Absolutely. I have tried to... I, I think it's important for... The board Patrol as a whole, I think organizationally, succession management is one of the things that we probably need to work on a little bit more, but we need to start identifying the future leaders earlier and the ones who we know want to volunteer, want to be involved, and want to lead this organization someday, start nurturing them sooner in their career and, and helping them, help teaching them, making themselves available. So I talk about you know having Norma available to me mm-hmm. um, uh, Myrta Lopez was a female supervisor down in Brownsville also having access to these women in early in my career early in my life to let me know kind of and see the things that were possible that I think also encouraged me later in my career that I need to make myself available too I need to uh, share my experience with others uh, men and women alike so A couple of years ago, we started a a program here at Del Rio Sector, uh, Women Investing in Law Enforcement, I'm sorry, Women Investing in Leadership Development, WILD is the acronym. And we get together quarterly, we have, you know, leadership discussions, we review resumes, share experience. Many women in the group, they're married, they have children, and just having them share their experience of how they do that and how they get through that and some of the tips, tricks, and things that have helped them succeed is good to share with others and I've also participated in the the DHS mentoring program the CBP mentoring program and again I think it's just really important that we share our experience, we share our ideas and we share just our knowledge so that others can learn from your experience, the good and the bad you know, Mm -hmm. I think every person I've met in my career has impacted me, either you've, you've met them and you've learned something about them that you take a piece and you want to use that for yourself, or you take a piece and you realize, I hope I never do that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Amen to that. Now you <laughs> you went a little bit rapid fire on your career progression, but I wanted to get back a little bit. So you ended up, uh, forgive me if I'm wrong, but uh, Apac of Del Rio. Yes, I
1: was Apac in Del Rio in 2012.
0: And, uh, and and what was it like going back to a station and being the second in command?
1: So. Going to the station and, and being the second in command, I'm not, I, you know, I would say that was probably, the APAC position was probably my scariest promotion. And when I say scariest, I just mean I was put in a position where I was the second in command of a station. Mm-hmm. And I didn't promote in a station that I had already worked in. I was, you know, I was the APAC at a station... For an area and with employees I had never even worked with before. I, I didn't know the area. I didn't necessarily know that many of the agents unless I had had training or, or met them in passing. And so it was really scary for me to kind of be put in that position. And don't get me wrong, I volunteered for it. I put in for the assignment. I mm-hmm. wanted it. Yes. But kind of stepping into that role was that that brief minute of they're going to find out I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> You know, there was that, that minute of, of, you know, uncertainty, and, and you kind of question your abilities, and you question whether or not you're going to be able to do it. But I, w- I was paired up with, with an excellent patrol agent in charge, his name was Phil Cock, mm-hmm. and again, he was guiding me and teaching me and mentoring me, and, you know, everybody was there to make sure everybody else succeeded. So it, it didn't take long, it didn't take long after I got there for that, that uncertain feeling to go away and for me to feel comfortable doing what I was doing, and comfortable enough to know that, you know, that didn't necessarily have to
0: be the end of the road either, that I, I could do other things. Well, and, that, and that's obvious, because then you went on to become a DPAC at Carrizo. Yes,
1: yes. And, and so when I, when I came over to Carrizo, and was second in command in Carrizo, I didn't have that, that uncertainty feeling. And again, I was I came to a station where I didn't know the area, didn't know the people unless I had met them otherwise in training or, or at work, and, but I, I did not have that uncertain feeling when I came here. I definitely came here knowing I can
0: do this. And, and you put in for that? Yes. Okay. Yes.
1: That was, so the, the APAC to DPAC time frame, that's when they, they were doing the, doing away with the APAC position and, and turning them into DPAC positions. And at also at the same time, they did away with the, the FOS position and came, came along with the watch commander position.
0: Okay. And so you feel a little more confident, a little more sure, and you're taking the Absolutely. reins there at Carrizo. Car- Car- Absolutely. And I, so, you know,
1: over the years I've, I've gone to several uh, trainings and seminars, and they talk about that for as far as promotion and leadership, that men, when they see a job announcement for a promotion, let's just say there's a half a dozen things on a list of what they need to be qualified with to put in for the job you know, they, they say, they said in this training, that a man will look at it and have two of those six qualifications and say, oh, yeah, I can do it, and put their name in the hat. Whereas a woman
2: <laughs> is more likely to wait until they have five or six, you know, of those things checked off before they're even going to put in for it. Yeah.
0: Sounds about right. <laughs> just feel we can make it up as we go along. <laughs> Which sometimes works, but not always. Exactly, exactly. And so in your next promotion you made a little history. Being a patrol agent
1: in charge? Yeah,
0: aren't you? You're the first female... So actually,
1: XO, XO, and patrol agent. Actually, I think starting at FOS, I was the first
2: in FOS. Almost every assignment after that has been a first. Okay, so... Uh, I was the first female FOS in Uvalde, I was the first female APAC in
1: Del Rio, first female EPAC in Carrizo, first female XO in the Border Patrol, and first female PIP in uh, Carrizo Springs.
0: Wow. That's amazing. I mean, I think that anybody that earns their place into any of those positions, especially a pack of a station, right? Those are legendary. You you always define your career by the packs you've had in your stations. I've only had two in, you know, two stations, El Cajon and San Clemente, but I remember which packs, you know, impacted me the most. And I've always remembered the, the patrol agent in charge at, at the stations that I've worked at and in all the positions that I've been in, I've always remembered the people who kind of were in the position
1: of what was perceived to be the power position at the time. You yeah. Know? I definitely wouldn't be where I'm at today if I hadn't had the support of my family, my husband Kyle and my, my children Wyatt and Justice. Or If they did not support me with, with everything that I do, then I definitely would not be able to do it. I wouldn't be where I'm at today. And, and also the people who have helped me along the way, the people I've worked with, the people I've worked for, the people who have worked for me, mm-hmm. um, without without the support of all of those people, wouldn't be where I'm at.
0: Well, first, let me say that I think Wyatt and Justice are the most texican greatest names i ever heard for kids. <laughs> yes. They, well, my, my
1: husband wanted to name Wyatt Augustus, and I, I just put my foot down. I couldn't do that.
0: <laughs> Good for you. Uh,
1: that's <laughs> great. So, so, but that's my challenge now, right? As I, I have two boys, I have two young men that, that I need to raise to
2: to be gentlemen, yes.
1: to have manners, and to also understand, though, that women can do anything they want to do; they can be anything they want
0: to be. So, don't ever treat them as if they can't do something. So, I, that, that's that's my challenge now. Yes, and I guess that's what I was going to maybe as we as we bring the podcast to a close. That's what I wanted to talk to you about because. You know, you came in and you carved your niche. You, you know, you, you, yes, you graduated the academy just like everybody else, but you went on to go to Brownsville Station where it might have seemed like that might have been the best start in the world, right? Getting in a place where it was X's and it was uh, processing and you just decided to embrace that. But as we went relatively quickly through your career, and I'm sure there's a ton of other things you could say and talk about but you work your way up you seem to legitimately hold on to your values and beliefs and uh, you and and move your way through and um, and again make history in many ways yourself there in Texas in the patrol with that said what would you say to agents that are coming in that are people that are applying right now male or female applying right now what would you say to them considering what the future looks like, what the current position, the situation of the patrol is, what do you say to them? I
1: would say, go for it, do it, welcome, we, we need help, we need the support, um, and it doesn't matter if a, a male or female, we we need them there, we need them to get to the academy, and whether they are men or women, they can do it, you know, there,
2: there are no limits, there are no boundaries, you know, the, the sky is the limit. Mm-hmm so
1: go for it yeah go for it and and treat each other well you know goes back to to how you
0: treat people that's how you're always going to be remembered is how you treat how you treat people well i can attest to that i am down to the last couple of weeks of my entire career and all i can think of right now is the best times in the job i ever had with the best people in the job i've ever known
1: absolutely So you're talking about your career kind of winding down this month.
0: Congratulations to you. Thank Um, you. I'm kind of on that downward slide right now, too. I've
1: already turned in my paperwork. I've got my date set for July 31st.
0: July 31st. You're going to be right after me.
1: Yes, yes. So I'll be figuring out the next chapter of my life soon.
0: And what might that be? I'll probably be helping my husband with his antique business.
2: I think... I think his business can do a lot better if he just had a little bit of supervision in it. <laughs> I
0: was gonna say, <laughs> wow, that's that you know, that hurts because I know the feeling. As soon as I, my wife uh, stepped up next to me and started helping me out with it, it's amazing uh, how how much of an improvement and how much more uh, you know motivated I've become. <laughs> yeah, and he's doing great. He's doing great without of course, me. I say sure. that, I say that tongue in cheek. Sure, but not really. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I have to ask you one last question, and I ask all my Texican people for, that I do the podcast with: Whataburger or In and Out? Whataburger. Ah, uh, good answer. That see, that's why you're <laughs> pack, That's why you're the pack of Carrizo Springs right there. If nothing else. <laughs> If everybody ignores anything else of this podcast, that right there is probably the the number one reason. I think that was one of the interview questions when I got the job. Oh, even better, even better. (laughs) That should be that. It should be a question. But, ma'am, it's been a joy and a pleasure speaking to you today and hearing your story, as inspirational as it is, and you know as powerful as it is because when you speak to somebody and you mentor somebody and you talk about your life you are the real deal you have experienced it you've lived it but you've also excelled you know in a way that many people wanna see is possible for regardless of who they are
1: thank you yes and so at the end of the day that's what it is right the gender doesn't matter You know, when when you're trying to excel and you're wanting to do something,
0: yes, everybody wants to do their best. They sure do, and you know this. This one of the reasons we're talking here is because it is Women's History Month this month, and we're honoring and celebrating all the female agents in the Patrol that, and and especially our historical ones. And you've had good mentors. We talked last time you and I talked. We talked about uh, Norma Cortez. We talked about Lynn Underdown. Which I will give up a grandchild for an interview one day.
1: But, uh <laughs> so, so, and that was you know kind of what we were talking about earlier. The first half of my career, I didn't really think much about Women's History Month. I didn't think about the women before me, their accomplishments, or what they had done in the border patrol. It wasn't until probably these last five to seven years that I really started acknowledging and in and respect and, and the utmost respect to Christine Gee, the first female patrol agent yes. uh, in, in 1975. And Carol Fetty being the first female promoted to the ranks of Supervisory Border Patrol agent in 1984. Yeah. Lynn Underdown being promoted as the first chief of a sector in 1999. And mm-hmm. then in 2005, she went
0: on to be promoted to the ranks of SES in RGV sector. And then Carla Provost, chief of the Border Patrol, yes. Team. Yes. 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 So,
1: she- those are amazing things. And th- those are the history makers right there.
0: Yes. And I'd like to also give honorable mention to Leslie Mullins, who was also a graduate with Christine Gee and ended up later on in San Clemente Station and then moved on to get a job with BLM later on. But she's not mentioned often, but she's in there as well as one of the first graduating in the first graduating class 107. Well, ma'am, again, it's been a pleasure, and I appreciate your time today, and uh, good luck on your eminent retirement, a career being in charge of your husband's antique business.
2: (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate you having me. I've thoroughly enjoyed this.
0: Thank you. All right. Thank you very much. This concludes our interview with Vanessa McKeon, Class 373, out of Charleston and the patrol agent in charge of Carrizo Springs station. As we heard here, she's taken the legacy left by the Trailblazers and Game Changers before her and honored their efforts by making her own history in the border patrol. Take a look at our all our official Old Patrol gear offered exclusively at Old Patrol HQ. Go to Old Patrol HQ at bigcartel.com. Please share these podcasts with everyone in the patrol. We can learn so much about how things were done in the Old Patrol and enjoy our rich history, heritage, and legacy that we all share with a few shenanigans along the way. Until our next episode, remember, ain't no patrol like the old patrol. Honor first, honor always.